As we come to these verses, we've been for three chapters now and probably for months in the Sermon on the Mount, and I continually have been promising we're going to speed up, and that's because in chapter 8, we're going to see a transition from what Jesus taught, not an exclusive transition in the book of Matthew, but we are going to see this transition from what Jesus taught to what Jesus did. And when we see what Jesus did, we'll be taking larger chunks of the narrative and moving along quite quickly, I would imagine. Uh, But here we come to his closing of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is calling for his audience, for those who had heard his teaching, to respond. Uh, In order for us as a church to go back to the last Sermon uh, on the Mount, we have to go all the way back to uh, May when uh, Bill, one of our elders, preached and but, but even then, we have to rewind even further and consider all of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling out of, of these uh, human, sinful, natural ways of thinking and calling us into kingdom thinking, calling us into being kingdom people. And he says some things that are very backwards. He begins by telling us how to be happy, and he says that we're happy when we mourn, and not just mourn the loss of something else, mourn our own spiritual condition, that we're happy when we're meek, when we're pure in heart, when we're merciful, and that happiness doesn't lead to those things, but that the byproduct of those things is happiness, that when we mourn our sinful condition, we we become happy. We find that there are few who find entrance into his kingdom. And and that the the way that promises life, but in fact leads to death, is broad and open and unrestricted. And there are many who who find it. Jesus comes all the way at the end in the last part of the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount that we saw to see Jesus cautioning us against the false teachers. And one of the things that's really difficult when we take such a close, in-depth look at the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes we're, we're prone to lose the forest for the trees. I know it's not very popular today to call out false teachers. However, what we see is that Jesus teaches us that there are two ways— The wide path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And immediately he enters into a discussion about false teachers. The reason being is that those false teachers are false guides, false shepherds who lead people in mass down the wide path that leads to destruction. And so if we don't want people, even ourselves or others, to be hastened down that path by false guides, we must be willing to say, hey, there are some people out there who appear to be shepherds, but in reality are wolves. And they don't lead us down paths that actually deliver on life. They certainly lead us down paths that promise it. Just don't lead us down paths that can deliver it. And then we come to this section where Jesus gives us a pretty stern warning about not the the ability of false teachers to lead us down deadly paths, but the ability of ourselves to lead ourselves down deadly paths. 
And so if in the previous verses, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is warning, about the, the, warning us about the problem of deceitful teachers, in these verses, he is warning us about the problem of self-deceit. J.C. Ryle puts this well when he says, The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. And I think there's several reasons that we might consider for such self-deception, why we might profess Christ but not actually believe in Christ, why we might hear the word of God but not understand or apply the word of God. And so I think there's several reasons that that we find in the world and scripture uh, for such self-deception. And I want to share four of those because I think they're worthy of consideration. The first reason I would warn us for such self-deception that we are saved, that we are headed down a path that offers life when in fact we may not be is false assurance. False assurance. This is a problem that's probably more prone in our day and age than it had in the past. But I've seen, I've heard, uh, we've all seen them on TV or in person where somebody says, hey, here's a prayer, repeat after me. If you just say these words, you will be saved. And somebody says those words and then a preacher or, or a well-meaning believer uh, just absolutely declares, well, you're saved now. But, but nowhere in Scripture do we find that what's given to us as evidence of salvation is, is a simple uh, repetition of some words. Uh, maybe we don't know this, but there's a whole lot in church history over the last 50 years that's led us to where we are in this church moment. And it started out about 50 years ago with a real push towards what was called free grace. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Because we all know that to us, anyways... Grace is free. Well, sometimes names can be deceiving. And free grace really is not about whether or not grace was free. The free grace movement came along uh, originating out of a seminary in Texas, a good and faithful seminary. However, that one of the professors there uh, really began this teaching. Uh, in fact, he kind of said just uh, out of care for somebody else, he jumped on the bandwagon with another person who was teaching, us, teaching this. But the free grace movement came about by saying, look, if you can just get somebody to say the sinner's prayer, if you can get them to say the words, whether they mean it or not, whether they believe it or not, and whether they live it or not, they'll be saved. And the modern tract movement was born, where where the last page of the tract handed out said, if you just read these words, you will be saved. And so if we could get somebody to walk down an aisle or raise a hand with every head bowed and every eye closed, I don't know about you, but when the pastor said every head bowed and every eye closed, we're looking, right? We're like, is anybody going to raise their hand when the pastor's up there and he's saying, thank you, thank you, God bless you. Is he just priming the pump or is there actually people raising their hands? Are we being manipulated spiritually or is this genuine? This church, tiny church I grew up in that only has so many people in it, how many thank yous can can you have in, in a month? Like, 
At some point, it, it just becomes fire insurance. I'm just raising my hand to, you know, make sure I'm, 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 I'm good. That's the kind of things that were born out of that. And so there's some people out there who I think are deceived into believing that they're saved because somebody declared that they were. But Romans 8 is clear that, that convincing us of our salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of ourselves, because we're so prone to deceive ourselves. In fact, it's in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul said he considered it a little thing to be examined by anybody or even himself. Why? Because we're so prone to deceive ourselves. It's really easy to look at our lives and go, man, I'm doing well, when in fact we may not be. The second reason, very connected to the first, is a failure to examine ourselves. We're called repeatedly in Scripture from 1 Corinthians 11 to 2 Corinthians to to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We're to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We are to test our faiths and examine our faiths every time we come to the Lord's table and participate in communion. And so sometimes a failure to appropriately and properly examine ourselves can lead to such self-deception. Thirdly, an inordinate concentration on religious activity. An inordinate concentration on religious activity. Can I, I, I mean, I'm, I'll just confess this as my own thing. Because when the church is busy, and lots of people are here, and lots of things are happening, it can feel like spiritual things are going on. It can feel like that kind of activity is, is you know, a sign. Oh, look, I go to all these things. All these things are happening. I go to Bible study. I go to church on Sunday. I go to life group. I, whatever it is, you know, we participate in all these things, and we can very quickly uh, come to the idea that, that activity is spirituality. But I think it's possible to love the church and to love the busyness of the church without loving Jesus. In contrast to that, it's possible to, to just come to church on Sundays or participate. I hate the language come to church because we don't come to church. We are the church. Uh, but, but, but it's possible to participate in the gathering of the church on Sundays and then very organically, without much organization, uh, have fellowship with other believers, to evangelize unbelievers, to spend time in the Word, to teach our children of who Jesus is. And while there may not be much organized activity in those things, Fellowship with other believers where the word of God is discussed. Evangelism where we tell those who don't know Jesus of of who he is. Instructing our children in the faith. Reading our own Bibles and spending time with the Lord in prayer and not being so busy that we don't have time for any of those things can be sources of real spirituality. And fourthly, we're guilty of relative righteousness. It's easy to be self-deceived by relative righteousness. What do I mean by relative righteousness? Well, there's two possibilities here. One is comparison. It's looking around and saying, well, I'm 
I'm better than all of you, so I must be good. Or relative righteousness can come from the thinking of of my good things will outweigh my bad things. But if we understand that our sin is infinitely offensive and requires the payment of an infinitely valuable Christ, then we come to understand that there is no amount of good that can outweigh the bad. Those are just four reasons as an aside for why we can be so self-deceived and why Jesus might be warning us of that here. But I think what he issues to us in these verses is three warnings. Three warnings in applying the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to share those with you today. Uh, Warning number one is profession without faith. Profession without faith. The first thing Jesus warns us about is the possibility of professing faith in him without actually having faith in him. Look with me at verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, so we're told it's directly to him. He's not talking about Baal or Asherah or Molech or whatever God it is that that is out there. He's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, the word Lord here uh, was uh, a, a common word used for the idea of sir. And so you might call somebody who you wanted to greet respectfully, sir. Uh, how do we know in this passage that when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, is, is, how do we know that they're not just calling him sir? How do we know that he's actually referring to himself as the Lord? Well, context is the big clue. Look at all of the imagery surrounding this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And we'll come back to those. But as we understand the context here, this is not a mere sir, sir. This is people standing before Christ, awaiting entrance into his kingdom at judgment, saying, Lord, We belong there. And in each of these, by the way, when it comes to their activity, which we'll look at later, where it says, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And in Greek, they're in what's called the emphatic position. You can move words around in Greek in ways you can't in English. These are all fronted at the beginning of the sentence and uh, for emphasis. So it's, it reads more like, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name do many mighty works. They're emphasizing the fact that even the way they lived their lives here, the activities they did, the religious and spiritual activities, were done in his name. But he says to us, not everyone who says, not everyone who professes that Jesus is Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice, importantly, that he does not say not anyone. He just says not everyone. There are some who will profess to him, Lord, Lord. And he will say, enter into my rest. But there are some who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they will not enter his kingdom. 
There are many who call him Lord, but who take the wide path. How is a profession of faith without faith possible? Well, if you're if you're asking that question, it could be that because we've been brought up in a, in a church culture from that free grace movement that says, if you've made a profession, then you must be saved. But here Jesus is teaching us otherwise. And so we have to ask the question, how is profession without faith possible? Well, I think what we're going to see through most of the rest of the book of Matthew, especially as we get to sections about parables, those come more towards the end. Uh, if, you, if you track Jesus' life and ministry, the further he gets down the road of his ministry and the closer he gets to the cross, the more cryptic he becomes in his teaching. And his stated purpose for that is so that seeing people may not see and hearing they may not hear. Because let's just be honest, he was not on a mission to be accepted by people. He was on a mission to be rejected by them, to be crucified by them. And so he gets more and more cryptic. But in these parables that some are supposed to get and others are not supposed to get, particularly when he illustrates the kingdom, he illustrates it in terms of affection, not just in terms of profession. Not profession being your job, but profession being what you say. He calls us to examine what, what we love. He calls us to, uh, to find him worthy. And so Jesus makes pretty clear, I think, through most of his teaching, that you can know who he is. You can even admit who he is without loving who he is, without trusting who he is. So if it's not mere profession, how is one then saved? Well, here Jesus says it's to do the will of the Father. And, and at the risk of Jesus sounding like what he's telling us is that we do something to earn salvation, we have to consider some of Jesus' other teaching. I just want to look at a couple verses really quickly in the book of John. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life hears and believes. Now, this idea of belief is much deeper than just intellectual assent or, uh, or verbal uh, recognition. It is, it is a much more internal thing. I think one of the best ways to understand this uh, is the idea of uh, trust. In fact, there's a great story. Uh, a missionary by the name of uh, John Payton uh, he was the first missionary, uh, I believe, to Papua New Guinea. Um, it was then called the New Hebrides. Uh, he, he was rejected by several tribes and, and actually ended up living with one tribe where many people came to believe. But as he was translating the scriptures, he could not find, he could not come up with, in fact, there was not a word in their language for believe or trust. He, he couldn't communicate the idea of faith in this culture. So one day, one of the tribal elders was walking by his hut, and he was sitting in a chair, and he asked, he asked the, uh, the elder, what, what was he doing? What was the word for what he was doing? And when he was given that word, that was the word he used to translate faith, to, to sit in. Because whether you realized it or not, every single one of you, when you sat down, you trusted that that chair was going to hold you up. 
Those of us big guys in the room, we don't do this with lawn chairs, right? They freak us out a little bit uh, because we've collapsed a few of them. I, I walk through Walmart if I need a new lawn chair looking at tags for weight limits, right? I mean, but when I come in here, I don't think about such things. To, to sit in something is to trust it, to understand that it will uphold you. Uh, to, to, I could go on. Well, let's move along. We get the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Uh, He told them hard things, and they left. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Faith looks at Jesus and says, I don't have anywhere else to go. You got everything. You're the only one who can offer what I need. I'm not going anywhere. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The vast majority of Christian history, starting with the book of Hebrews maybe, and many other places in the New Testament, has always presented to us the idea of abiding in Christ as the evidence of our salvation. How do you want to know whether or not you're saved? What is your relationship like with Jesus when you die? That will be the test. Read through Hebrews and see how many times it talks about if we abide in him. And here, John 8, 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There ought to be an abiding in him because there is a a trust. Interestingly, uh, I just came over this uh, uh, over the last couple days. Church Answers uh, did a survey and they were comparing some things going on among Christians from now to 2019. And I think maybe we have some evidence of maybe some misplaced trust. Overwhelmingly, in this survey, what was reported as the singular most beneficial spiritual exercise among believers was personal Bible reading. I believe that is correct. But only 35% of Christians say they read their Bibles regularly. That doesn't represent an abiding in God's word. I'm not saying that every single one of those 65% are unsaved. But when the church is self-reporting that only 35% of Christians say they regularly read their Bibles, we must wonder where one's trust is. Similarly, through the pandemic, I know we said we were never going to talk about that again, and yet here we are. Did you know that during the pandemic, there was only one group of people in the U.S. who reported an increase in mental health? You know what the mark of those people was? Weekly church attendance. Weekly. Not not annually. You know, there are CEOs out there. We have our CEOs. Y'all know what CEOs are? Christmas Easter onlys? There's plenty of them. 
The average Christian participates in their local body of Christ about one to two times per month. In, by the way, disobedience to the command of Christ. And yet we see it's not actually working for people. That those who regularly participate in the body of Christ. It's not those who say, well, you know, I know Jesus says I need a church, but I'm going to trust my way. It's not those who say, well, I know that Bible reading is good for me, but, oh, those screens, they, they offer so much. It's those who say, you know what, I'm not only going to trust that Jesus can save me, I'm going to trust that he knows how to direct my life as well. It's those people who report the most spiritual growth, the most happiness. Could it be that some of these numbers reveal what we really love? Saying that Jesus is Lord without loving Jesus as Lord will never get you into his kingdom. Saying that Jesus is Lord without loving him as Lord will never get you into his kingdom. Warning number two, warning number one was profession without faith. Warning number two is action without faith. Action without faith. Uh, He goes on in verses 22 through 23 to say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? The, The size of that spiritual activity should not be lost on us. If somebody were to come in here and they were, to, they were able to reveal all mysteries to us and they were able to cast out demons and they were able to raise the dead, this is the type of thing that mighty works is. The other two are named here. If somebody were to come into the church and say, God has sent me to you to give you a message and they cast out demons and we see the evidence and, and they speak truthful things that even come to pass, and they raise the dead and heal the sick, might we not be inclined to say, God must be with them? But Jesus says, verse 23, that he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people knew who Jesus was because it's still the same people from verse 21, and they did some serious spiritual stuff in his name. Big things. But from Moses to Corinth, we see that spiritual gifts can be counterfeited. Moses was sent to Pharaoh, whose magicians were able to do some of the same miracles that he did. The church in Corinth in chapter 12 and 14 was abusing spiritual gifts. Moses was able to abuse spiritual gifts by striking a rock in anger, which kept him out of the promised land. Spiritual gifts, can, can be, uh, they can be abused. And they can be counterfeited. Interestingly, this is really important, I think. Did you know that nowhere in Scripture are spiritual gifts presented to us as evidence of one's spiritual maturity? Never. The church in Corinth was spiritually immature. Usually the one that people pick on is, well, if you were saved, you would speak in tongues. But Paul very clearly asks us to understand that not everybody speaks in tongues. 
Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture are spiritual gifts, religious activity given to us as evidence of maturity. You know what is? The fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit that is is evidence of faith. What is the evidence? Why is fruit of the Spirit evidence? Well, it's obedience. Uh, Remember again, John 8, chapter 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice the order of things here. I want to dive into that verse a little deeper. Jesus, it, says, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. These Jews believed, and Jesus wants them to understand what the evidence of their, of their salvation will be. If you abide in my word, then you will be shown to be my disciples. If obedience is the evidence, why aren't these people saved? I mean, it looks like they were obedient. They did big things. Well, Hebrews eleven six 6 is clear. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It doesn't matter what religious activity we do. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation. It's not the root of it. It's the byproduct, it's not the foundation. So yes, faith without works is dead as we see in James, but here we see that works without faith is equally as dead. Works without faith cannot get you into the kingdom. Jesus goes on to say that they practice lawlessness. There may be some activity, but there was not true obedience. And Jesus' words here to us ought to be sobering. Notice what he says. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. No has an intimate idea here. Sometimes it's used for for intimacy between a husband and a wife in Scripture. Other times it's used for God's infinite and affectionate knowledge of his people. So Jesus isn't saying, I didn't know about you. He's saying, "I, I was not intimately connected with you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This this ought to be so sobering because it sounds so much like Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I should pull that verse up because I didn't get the whole thing in my notes. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. 15. Uh, that was the whole thing. But, but the, the idea here uh, still is, I think I just got the wrong verse, but there's this idea of depart. They were cast into the lake of fire. Working for Jesus without first trusting Jesus in his work, trusting your work first instead of his, will never get you into the kingdom of heaven. And so just like professing faith in Christ without actually, uh, even professing faith in him as Lord without loving him as Lord won't get you into the kingdom, trusting your works and not his will never get you into the kingdom. See, it's his righteousness that is our righteousness or becomes our righteousness through faith. And so he lives the perfect life we should have lived. It's his death that becomes our death through faith. And it's his life that becomes our life. His resurrection becomes our resurrection 
through faith. And so working for Jesus without first trusting in his work will never get you into his kingdom. And warning number three, the final warning here, is knowledge without faith. Jesus finally warns us against, about knowledge without faith. Look with me at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, there's the key, who hears these words. And so the two contrasting builders, these two men who built houses here in the remaining verses of chapter 7 are being contrasted. They both heard the words of Jesus. They both knew the words of Jesus. They both understood the words of Jesus, but they did two very different things with them. And so I want to compare the, or I want to consider the similarities, and then I want to consider the differences. I think there are four similarities worth considering here. Both builders heard Jesus' words. This is what we've already talked about. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine. Both builders had access to the teaching of Jesus. Both had knowledge. Number two, both are building a house. It seems obvious, but this house that they're building here is a metaphor for life. Each each person here, each one of us in this room, is building our lives on some kind of foundation. We're building our house on something. The third similarity is that both men have apparently built in the same area and are hit by the same storm. Both men are building generally in the same area. And so it might, it might seem very similar at first. Uh, and fourthly, uh, both men seem to build the same type of house. In other words, they, they lived the same type of life. I don't think Jesus is comparing the hyper-holy from the super-sinful here. He's not saying, hey, let's, let's look at the holiest of the holy and the worst of the worst. He's comparing two lives that from all external perspectives look the same. Both men maybe lived in the same town, were members of the same church, went to the same growth group, professed the same doctrines, went to the same Bible study. Whatever the case may be, these lives look the same. But the big point Jesus wants to make here is how these houses are different. And so in verse 24, he says, everyone who hears these, my, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I love the Greek here. And mega was the fall of it. The big difference is obviously the foundation. It wasn't the construction of the house. It wasn't the engineering of the house. It wasn't the appearance of the house. It wasn't the training or education of the house builder. It was simply the foundation it was built on. The first was built on something immovable. It was built on rock. And the second was built on something shifting. It was built on sand. I think this imagery of sand, as I considered it, is pretty incredible. Because the rock that the, 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 the secure house was built on 
was one thing. And the sand of the other that the other house was built on was tens of thousands of things. Oh, Jesus is such a master teacher here. I think, in other words, what he's saying is, is that to build your life on Christ is a sure foundation, and to build it on anything else, even everything else, is trouble when the storm comes. Sand is comprised of lots of little things, maybe even good things, maybe even Similar things to what rock is composed out of. And our lives are similar. Lots and lots of little things. Good things. Godly things. Work. Family. Church. Exercise. Sports. Recreation. Politics. Activism. Etc. All good things. And none of them big enough to build a life on. None of them big enough to build a life on. What happens when, com- when your, your business folds, goes bankrupt? If we haven't been paying attention to submarines, businesses can go bankrupt overnight. What happens when your kids grow up? Or your spouse gets cancer? Or your church hurts you? Or you get old? Or your political candidate loses? What happens when the sand shifts and you built your life on that thing? One built his life on the rock. He heard the word of God and he obeyed it. He heard and did. He didn't just pay lip service. He actually built his life according to Jesus' instructions. The other built his life on lots and lots of little things. I'm concerned for all of us, about how easy it is to build our lives on the sand. Listen to A.W. Pink. He says, they bring their bodies to the house of prayer, but not their souls. They worship with their mouths, but not in spirit and in truth. They are sticklers for immersion or early morning communion, yet take no thought about keeping their hearts with all diligence. They boast of their orthodoxy, but disregard the precepts of Christ. Multitudes of professing Christians abstain from external acts of violence, yet hesitate not to rob their neighbors of a good name by spreading evil reports against them. They contribute regularly to the, quote, pastor's salary, but shrink not from misrepresenting their goods and cheating their customers, persuading themselves that business is business. They have more regard for the laws of man than those of God, for his fear is not before their eyes question before us in considering our lives is, who are we when nobody's looking? 1 John 2, 3-6, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Knowledge without obedience is a life built on sand. And if it hasn't hit yet, the storm is coming. Our lives will be judged. And what we build on will be put to the test. 
And so don't be those who are self-deceived because as we saw at the very beginning of this message, fail to test themselves. And so I'm calling every single person in this room to test yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5-10. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to fail. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, and the Lord, that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul's words here are written to a church. He's writing to a church to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith so as not to fail the test. The tragedy isn't needing to test ourselves. The tragedy is failing to do so. It's, by the way, as a church, why we take membership so seriously. Because we don't want to. Imagine. Imagine Jesus comes back as soon as I'm done preaching. Because this is such a good sermon, he couldn't come back before, I'm sure. And all of us are standing before him in judgment together. And one by one, we walk up to him and he asks, why should I let you into my heaven? And what if, what if anybody in this room were to hear from the Lord, depart, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. What a tragedy. The tragedy is not to need to test ourselves. The tragedy is to fail to do so because knowledge without faith will never gain you entrance into the kingdom. In closing, I think we have to consider the people's response. Because if Jesus' response is sobering, the people's response is just sad. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were amazed at what he taught. They were amazed at why he taught. But we can't mistake this for the idea that they believed. Because as I said before, it won't be long before we see this gigantic crowd abandon him completely. They were amazed at his teaching but not as his character, at his character. They marveled at what he said, but they didn't marvel at who he was. Are you amazed at his teaching? Oh, you should be. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Do you hear what he says and marvel, but go out and live like you've never heard? Do you admire him, but not enough to emulate him? Belief in Christ must result in trust, and trust requires action. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith, because profession, nor action, nor knowledge will help you pass the test without faith. They are all important, but they're all useless without faith. May none of us fail to meet the test. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ who whether it be in the wilderness at the start of his ministry or at the cross at the end, never failed to meet a test. And we have failed many. 
But may we not fail to meet the test of examining our own lives to see if what we have is genuine saving faith, not mere profession, not not mere work or activity on your behalf, and not mere knowledge, but a genuine, abiding, seated trust in you for our good and for your glory. Amen.